Our second scripture passage is from the book of Romans, chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. When I say the word, the word cancer, what comes to mind? Is it back pain and sore joints? being tired and not having an appetite? It's actually not what we primarily think. We primarily think a terrible disease and tumors that we cannot see inside the body. We think of the disease, not the symptoms. When I say this word, what comes to mind? I'm gonna say the word sin. What comes to mind? My guess is, if I say the word sin and you were to think about it, what would come to your mind is the Ten Commandments, murder, Adultery, theft. Or if we're going to go back, you know, there's cultural vices that maybe get included in there, the blue laws of the South, dancing, drinking, smoking, playing cards, dating people who do. <laughs> Modern cultural vices like littering or eating carbs, things that are sin. But today we're talking about sin, and I want you to realize that's the symptom, not the disease, okay? Many of us try to deal with our sin through discipline and behavior modification. Dealing with sin through discipline and behavior modification is like treating cancer with physical therapy and ice only. Why do many people go to church? If you go across America, there are millions of people who go to church. Many people go to church to work on their faults and their weaknesses. Christianity helps me to be a better person. But we need to remember this. We talk about it here regularly. Christianity does not say Jesus is your life coach. He is your mentor. He is your personal trainer. It says Jesus is your savior. The gospel, we talked about this last week as we've been in this series that just started last week looking at some of the basics of Christianity using a catechism or instruction that has 19, 18 questions, and we're going to walk through those. The gospel last week said God loved us and saved us through his son, Jesus Christ. God saved lost mankind. That's what the gospel says. That's what Christianity is about. Do you actually think you need to be saved, though? Or do you just need a little help? 
how do you go through your regular day? Do you go through your day regularly thinking, gosh, I really need to be saved. I'm totally lost. Or do you think, eh, I just need a little bit of help? We go through so much of our day trying to prove how capable and competent we are, how we're basically good people, we don't think of ourselves as completely lost, needing to be saved. But as our instruction booklet says, if you didn't pick one of these up, pick one up on the way out, what is the human condition? The human condition, the universal human condition is that though I am made for fellowship with a creator, we have been cut off from him by self-centered rebellion. This is called the state of sin. So what's the problem? We are all alienated from God by nature. We live apart from him, choosing our own path. Sin is a disease, not a symptom. The root issue is not our actions. It's our will and our desire, the very heart of us. And this morning, we're going to unpack that a little bit by looking at Genesis 3 and Romans 1, two of the most significant passages talking about the depth of the human problem. So we'll work through Genesis 3 and then Romans 1, and be done with it. God's word comes to Adam in the garden in Genesis chapter two. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So one of the things we need to start with here is that God is incredibly generous. There's liberal generosity in verse 16. He says to Adam and Eve, everything, eat anything you want. The whole garden is yours. I've made creation for you to enjoy. Go and enjoy it. It's liberal generosity. He has one prohibition. But of the tree of knowledge, do not eat. For when you do, you will die. What's interesting in that prohibition is there's not a reason why. Now, he gives a curse, you will die. But why is this fruit going to, what's wrong with it? Give me an explanation, God. Why should I not eat of this? What, what's, what's tied to this fruit? Is it poisonous? Is it? God does not give a reason. The point is, trust my word. Trust me. And that's a hard thing for any of us to do. What if, what if God forbids something that feels good? What if God forbids something that's very natural to who I am? What if God forbids something that everyone in our culture says is okay? And I don't know why. All sin, all sin at its root is rejecting God and God's word and doing what we want, doing what we delight in, doing what we desire. The serpent comes, shows up in Genesis chapter 3, and what does he do? He begins by getting Adam and Eve, by getting Eve here to question God. Verse 1, did God actually say? Verse 4, he will not surely die. I mean, he's bluffing. God knows he's holding something back. God knows if you eat of this, then you're going to know good and evil. You're going to be like him. Your eyes are going to be opened. You're going to be like God. You see what Satan's doing here? He's questioning God's motives and God's goodness. Why doesn't he want you to eat of it? What's he holding back on? 
many of us have trouble trusting God because we're not quite sure God has our best interests in mind at all times. The things that he seems to be calling us to and prohibiting don't seem to line up with what we want in our life. And we're not quite sure God has our best interests in mind. Our view of God is much like the story that Sinclair Ferguson, a Scottish preacher, tells about a father and a son in a toy story. It goes like this. Once upon a time, there was a father who took his little boy to a huge toy store, toy store, not toy story, toy store at Christmas time. They walk inside, and he says to his son, what do you think? Looking around, there's Christmas lights and toys all over the place. And the son answers, oh, everything is so great. The father, walking with the son, points at something and says, would you like this? Pointing at this huge train set. Really? The boy asks. Or how about one of these going a little further, pointing at the newest gaming system? <gasps> wow. The boy is almost speechless. And for the next hour or two, they wander around, and the father keeps pointing at things. How about this? How about this? And the boy is just gazing and dreaming about all these toys. And finally, when the time comes to leave, the father looks at his son and says, well, now we've seen all that this store has to offer at Christmas. I want you to know that I'm never going to get you any of this. Now, come on, we have to go. And they leave. Many of us have a view of God that is that father. All this good stuff, and he's holding back on us. And to the extent that a view of God like this creeps in, we're going to do one of two things. We're either going to rebel against God, like the prodigal son in the prodigal son parable, and try to go find toys on our own. I'll get my own good stuff. I'll do it my way. Or we're going to live in constant fear, trying to obey God, out of fear, thinking, if I can just please my dad, maybe he'll get me one toy. But deep down in, we have this, this view that God's commands, God's commands, whether they are about our money or our sexuality or about self-sacrifice or loving people who have hurt us, are actually unreasonable and completely arbitrary. He just doesn't want the best for us. We doubt God's goodness. and We don't trust his word. And that's what all sin is. All sin at its root is a lack of trust in God's word. It's doubting who God is. It's actually unbelief that's at the root of any sin. So Adam and Eve doubt God's word. They follow their own desires and they eat. But they don't actually die biologically. You know, one of the reasons why that's kept in there as it is is so that we as the reader years later would say, huh, so God has this warning about you're going to die if you do this, and they didn't actually die physically. What are you going to do? When something before you is forbidden, you're not going to actually die. Go ahead. But of course they do die spiritually. They do die morally in anticipation of dying physically and possibly eternally. In Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, it's all confronted. 
And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? God is walking in the garden. This is a metaphor, actually, throughout the Bible for walking with God. Is, it meant you were in fellowship with God. You were in relationship with him. Here's God walking in the garden. The, the implication is Adam and Eve are supposed to be there walking with him, as they always did. A man of God like Elijah walked with the Lord. Where are Adam and Eve? We are made to walk with God, to be in fellowship with him. But instead, Adam has done what? He's covered his body because he's ashamed and he's hiding from God because of guilt and fear of God. And God calls out, where are you? He knows where Adam is, but Adam does not want to be found by God. And as a result, he and God are separated. And that is the problem. We are all by nature separated from God because of our sinfulness. We see this in question number three in this instruction little booklet. How does sin affect us? Sin alienates me from God and my neighbor and God's good creation and myself. Alienated from God, Adam hides and defends and blames Eve, he's alienated from her, he's alienated from himself and creation. We all by nature are alienated from God. That's the story in Genesis 3. Romans 1 tells actually the exact same story, but from a theological perspective, years later looking back on the state of all humanity and each of us today. It's less like a story way back in the past and more like, okay, you want to know the state of your heart? Let me explain it to you. Romans 1 is a reflection on Genesis 3, the original fall. And instead of the fall, this is the, a passage I would call the great exchange. The problem is we've exchanged the love of God for other loves. We worship and serve something else besides God. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, explaining to the Roman Christians all they need to know, and it starts with our problem. He says, here's the problem. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Every person suppresses the truth. Everyone has an awareness of God. Deep down in, we all know there is something beyond us. But we suppress that. And what do we do? Verse 21, although they knew God or they know of God, they did not honor him or give thanks to him. They did not honor God or give thanks to him. And now God sounds petty. Like, come on, guys, a little honor here. How about a thank you note? But let's break down what these words mean, honor and give thanks. Honor actually means glory. It's this Greek word doxadzo. I'm going to get a little Greek lesson here. Doxadzo, from which we get the word doxology, meaning praise of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's actually incredibly rich 
word in the Bible, this idea of doxology or glory belonging to God. The word glory and the idea from the Hebrew is, we've heard us talk about it here, is weighty, something weighty. Glory means the most important thing, the immovable mover. It's the idea of an oil tanker next to a canoe. One of these has more glory. One of these will move the other out of the way. When I was in high school, I was not good enough to play on the basketball team, but I liked pickup basketball. Our girls' basketball team that during those years was very good. I remember playing one time in one of the gyms around here, a bunch of boys and a couple of the girls from the girls' basketball team, and I was covering one of the ones who went on to play in college. And I was doing all right covering her, but one thing I didn't, I, I didn't think about was how boys rebound, which is you run in and just jump. Well, she knew how to box out. And so she went like this and proceeded to push me pretty much out of the entire gym and get the rebound. She had greater glory than me at that moment. One of us was moved and one of us was the mover. I was not the mover. That's what glory is. And you know, if you look at how we relate to one another and go through our life, at home, at school, our career, we're constantly boxing others out. We're constantly boxing others out wherever, in whatever area we find our worth and our identity. If it's in sports, I've got to box others out. If it's in academics, I've got to keep ahead. If it's my career, I've got to make sure that I'm, I'm keeping my place. We do it at home. We do it everywhere. We're basically looking for glory. And what happens when somebody enters the room who is better and more glorious than you at whatever it is that you find your identity in? You find it in your beauty and somebody more beautiful walks in. You're the most intelligent person until somebody else walks in. You're the most athletic until you find somebody else. You know what happens? Their glory pushes us away. We either fight or we fall. It's how we live our lives in contention with one another and ourselves. But who, who is truly glorious? Who is actually most important? Who alone deserves doxology? In your life, is it God and God alone that moves you or something else? We do not honor and glorify. We do not doxologize. The other thing we don't do is give thanks. And that's the Greek word eucharisto, from which we get a term eucharist, give thanks. It's a, it's, it's a way of talking about the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, eucharist, a thanksgiving for what God has done. And this is not politeness. It's not the write your thank you note. It's rather, it's rather proper acknowledgement. So if you're writing a thesis, a doctoral thesis, you need to cite your sources. Show where your thoughts are dependent on somebody else's thought. Give credit where you are building off of somebody else, where it's not an original idea or original thought. You cite your sources is to Eucharisto. It's to give proper credit. What Paul is saying here is we are all plagiarizers. 
We are all plagiarizers, going around taking credit and ignoring God's role in our life. And this makes sense for us, especially as Americans, because we are a merit-based, achievement-based, success-oriented society, which basically means you get what you deserve. If you work hard, you will earn something. And so we go around thinking, looking at our lives and saying, you know, I got into college because I have the brains and I worked hard. It was me. I got where I am in my career because I put in those extra hours. My kids turned out fantastic because I'm a great parent. And then we're always looking for recognition, demanding that we get credit. We want people to give thanks to us. Don't my kids know what I've done for them? How come people at work don't know the role that I play here? We are too busy seeking thanksgiving and Eucharist for ourselves so that we do not Eucharisto or acknowledge God. We assume that credit for ourselves. And so what do we do? It's the great exchange. We see this in verse 23 and verse 25. We exchange the glory of God, the truth about God, for other gods. We worship and serve the creature. We worship and serve ourselves. And so what does God do? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. God gives them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity. Now, I actually am going to take issue with the translation here. The English Standard Version, which we generally read out of, translates that word lust, I think, wrongly. It's a very common word in the Greek Bible. It's the word epithumia. It's made up of two things, the, the preposition epi, meaning over, plus the word thumia, meaning will or desire. So it's basically a over-desire, a root or great desire, a super-desire, your main desire, your heart's heart, the thing you're most after, the thing that drives you, your epi-desire. And in the Bible, it's not always a bad thing. Paul, Paul said, I desire to be with Christ in Philippians 1. So if you want to translate it as lust, I lust to be with Christ. It's not a negative connotation. Jesus uses the same word when he says to his disciples on the night that he was crucified, when he's having that last supper with the disciples, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover meal with you. I have lusted to eat this Passover meal with you. I have desired in my heart of hearts to do this. Jesus, in saying that, is saying, I have epi-desired to fulfill the Father's plan, to give my life for you. So, epi-desires are not the problem. We all have them. Something or someone is our main desire, our root desire. Something motivates and drives us. The question is, what do you desire most? in your heart of hearts? Is it God or is it something else? Is it God that you are serving or yourself? We reject God, we exchange God for others, and God gives us over to our epi-desires. 
And this doesn't just mean being bad. In Romans 1, Paul then goes on to talk about vices and immorality and idolatry, what the Greeks and Romans did. But in chapter 2 and 3 of Romans, he bears it out through talking about the Jewish people who were religious and followed all the moral commandments. You can be very, very bad externally or very, very good externally and have a wrong epi-desire in your heart. So if you choose anything other than God, God will give you over to that. What does this look like? Can I have you two come forward? I need you and you. You're the closest, so you get it. One of you needs to be God, the other needs to be man. Okay. My own son chooses God. <laughs> so God creates us to be in relationship with him. God, man, right? God creates us to be in relationship with him. But we reject God. We don't want to do his desires. Instead, we choose our own desires, and God gives us over. Basically, he means, go ahead, do what you want. Take a step that way. And if you want to keep going, you can just keep going. Just go ahead, keep going straight. Don't, don't curve. You're curving. <laughs> keep going straight. God gives us over to our heart's desires. Go ahead, go the way you want. He gives us freedom. You want freedom? Have all you can have. All you, keep turning around. There you go, just until you fall off. In the end, if we keep going, we drop off. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Basically, we are made to relate to God, but we turn and reject him, choosing our own heart's desires, and God says, okay, go the way you want. This is a description, actually, of hell as C.S. Lewis had insight for. The wrath of God, okay, the wrath of God, which Paul is talking about in Romans 1, is you are being given over to your own heart's desires. It's you want to live like God, you want to be your own God, go ahead, do what you want. God gives you that freedom. What does being given over look like? Well, it might start like this. You might start with being somebody who, at one point, was just a critical person. Because you're, you're the kind of person who sees truth and has to tell it. But eventually your critical nature becomes such that you're just a complainer filled with negativity. And if that goes unchecked, you're a completely unpleasant and bitter person. C.S. Lewis describes it very hauntingly this way. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. And elsewhere in the book he writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Take any one of our neurosis, our fears, our vices, our addictions, your lusts, your need for approval, your anxiety at being in control. What does it look like if unchecked after 40 years or 1,000 years or 10 million years? 
you curve inward and inward. There's nothing left but you and your evil self. Hell is the eternal trajectory of a life turned towards anything but God. So what's the problem? That's the question we've been answering today. What is the problem for human nature? It's sin. But when we talk about sin, we're talking about worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. When we talk about sin, we're saying knowing of God, but not glorifying or giving thanks to God. Sin is living apart from God, doing what we want and what we desire. And hell is simply God giving us the freedom to follow our hearts at be desires, to do what we want, to live apart from him forever. You'd even call that being God forsaken. Look, when we talk about sin, and this is especially for kids in the room, teenagers, younger, God is not after your behavior. Your mom and dad are. Your teachers might be. God is not after your behavior. God is after the desires of your heart because he knows the behavior will follow. Do you desire God most? So how do we submit our epi desires to God? We can't. Question number five in our question and answer instruction little booklet Question number five is, can you mend your broken relationship with God? No. No, I have no power to save myself. Sin has corrupted my conscience and captured my desires. Only God can save me. We all exchange the truth of God for a lie. We doubt God's goodness, and we worship and serve ourselves. And God will give us over to our epi desires. We need God to restore us. We need God to save us. The gospel tells us that there was a greater exchange. We exchange the truth of God for a lie. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. But there was a greater exchange in that God was given over for us. Jesus the Son walked with the Father. He walked with the Father in loving communion. No shame, no guilt, no fear, no hiding, in complete and perfect union for all eternity and throughout his incarnation, until on the cross, when he became sin for us. And as he's hanging there, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in his death on the cross, was given over. He experienced our alienation. He experienced our eternal apartness, and he did so in our place. Think about it. Jesus lived the life we cannot live. He died the death we deserve to die so that we can have life that he deserves, communion with the Father, now and eternally. Epi-desiring God how do you do it? Start with confession. Start with confession. And I don't just mean confessing the, the, the bad things you've done or left undone. Realize and admit the depth of your brokenness. 
that you don't just need Jesus as a life coach, a personal trainer, or a therapist. You need a savior. You're lost and need to be found. You're dead, as our Ephesians creed said, and you need to be resurrected. Confess that your epi desires are often for yourself and realize that you are more sinful than you're probably willing to admit. And then live in constant doxology and Eucharisting of the one true God, acknowledging where everything comes from and who is truly the immovable mover. And then do whatever you want. Live however you want. When what you want in your heart of hearts is God. Let's pray. God, freedom is found in walking with you in humility and dependence. But in order to do that, we need to be made alive because we are sinful and dead and we desire ourselves and not you. Give us the grace to put our trust in Jesus to put our trust in you and your word and not in ourselves. In your name we pray, amen. God, my heart renew and make my spirit right in you. Cast me not away from thee. Let thy spirit dwell in me. Thy salvation's joy in part. Steadfast make my willing